Are you a fan of science fiction movies that will leave you questioning everything you thought you knew? Well, look no further than Oblivion, the 2013 film starring Tom Cruise as a technician living in a post-apocalyptic world where everything is not as it seems. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be diving into the mind-bending plot, thought-provoking themes, and impressive special effects of the movie. But be warned, this film will have you questioning reality and questioning what you're capable of. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Let's get started on today's episode of Patio Commentary. Hi, my name is Matt Jarbo. Welcome to this week's episode of Patio Commentary, episode number 21, talking about 2013's Oblivion starring Tom Cruise and directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Of course, you might know those two more from this past year with the absolute success that was Top Gun Maverick. And this one is what brought them together originally. And it's a movie that I just watched again the other day as I was prepping for this podcast. And I really forgot how much I really enjoyed what this movie was about, how, how much I really enjoyed the simplicity of it, how much I really enjoyed that it was something unique and something different. And it didn't feel like it was coming out around the same time as all the other big tentpole movies that had come out around that time. I mean, we're talking 2013. This was post-Avengers. Uh, this is right before Iron Man uh, 3. This is, I believe, even right before Fast and Furious 6. Uh, this is, you know, right before Man of Steel came on out. This is just what felt like pre-times. You know, one of the last big original science fiction movies coming out before the boom of all these IP films that we know and that we love and that I'll ultimately be discussing here on the show. But I wanted to dive in to this movie because I feel like it's worth discussing these smaller kind of films. And it's weird to say that about this movie because it actually did originate as a graphic novel. That's right. Joseph Kaczynski, the director of the movie, originally wanted to create a cinematic adaptation of his graphic novel, Oblivion, which he was co-writing with Arvid Nelson for Radical Comics. The novel itself was never finished. In fact, it never even really got out of the developmental process. And so he ultimately just kind of held on to that idea and used it as a way to pitch this film to the studios. Now, originally, Walt Disney Pictures actually had the rights to Oblivion because they had acquired them from Kaczynski and Radical Comics while he was working on Tron Legacy back in 2010. And I feel like Disney did this as one of those things where they're like, all right, you're doing this really big end of the year movie for us, this huge, massive sequel that everyone's excited about. So, yeah, we want to keep you in the fold, keep you in the family. We're going to option off this uh, this particular story from you. But when they ended up realizing that they were going to make it a PG movie and that's not exactly what Kaczynski wanted. Disney eventually released the rights and they went over to Universal because Universal had also expressed some interest in this movie right off the bat. They had actually uh, bid on it originally alongside Paramount and 20th Century Fox, but Disney got it because, you know, the deal that he had going on at the time. But when it came up for reacquisition, the rights ultimately went to Universal and through them, they authorized the PG-13 version of the film. It's not to say that this movie needs to be anything more than being PG-13. I think the concepts work well enough to keep it in that particular range, and I don't quite know why Disney would have been against it. Disney has had success with PG-13 movies. The Pirates of the Caribbean franchise is all PG-13. The Marvel movies are all PG-13, with the rare exception being rated PG. They've had success in this particular space. 
So I don't quite know what they were really worried about. But then again, this was at the time when they were doing this, we're talking, you know, 2010 and Hollywood was way different, especially Disney was way different in 2010. They had only just acquired Marvel. The MCU hadn't really gotten off the ground just yet over there at Paramount. I mean, it had a couple movies coming out, but this is also like pre-Tomorrowland, pre-John Carter, pre-The Lone, the Lone Ranger, pre a bunch of these big budget movies that ultimately failed to connect with audiences and ended up costing Disney a lot of money. And like I said, this is even before they bought Star Wars. So this was definitely a different time, and maybe they thought they really didn't have the space for it. They didn't really have the uh, the bandwidth to push something like that out there in a way that would they felt would be successful. And so once the movie was over with Universal, the script, which was actually originally written by Kaczynski and William Monaghan, who is probably best known for having written the screenplay for The Departed, Ashley underwent rewrites by Carl Gajusik and Michael Arndt, who was actually using his pen name, Michael De Bruyne. Probably the only movie you might know recently that Carl Gajusik wrote was The Kingsman. And Michael Arndt actually was one of the writers on Toy Story 3, as well as doing a lot of other uncredited work on other movies. When the script was finally done and passed off to Universal for their approval, they actually praised the final script, calling it one of the most beautiful scripts we've ever come across. And this is one of the things that really kind of, I think, got Tom Cruise interested in being in the role. He had expressed interest in the film for quite some time, but officially committed to it on May 20th, 2011. But what about the leading lady? What about Julia's character? Who would play opposite Cruise? Well, the producers had considered a couple different actresses. In fact, Jessica Chastain was the lead contender. She was signed on to the role originally. They also looked at Olivia Wilde, Britt Marling, Numi Rapace, and Olga Kurienko. And they all actually auditioned and they all were really liked, but Chastain had ultimately got the part. And then what happened is she got the call from Catherine Bigelow and was like, hey, girl, you want to be in Zero Dark Thirty? And yeah, like, why turn that down? I mean, the the director of The Hurt Locker, which had won all these awards, was doing her follow-up movie, which is about the assassination of Osama bin Laden. I mean, it's, it's a big movie. It could have a lot of Oscar implications and be great for the career. And so she wanted to do it. And look, to Tom Cruise's credit, and this guy's kind of a control freak. I think we know this at this point. But to Tom Cruise's credit, he let her be released from her contract for Oblivion to make the other movie. And she's actually gone out of her way to publicly thank Cruz because this was a bigger role for Jessica Chastain. And I think it's one that's ultimately benefited her in the years since Zero Dark Thirty came out. And then, of course, the role ultimately went to Olga Kirienko. And I was thinking about it as I was watching it the other day. I'm like, what if it was Olivia Wilde in the role? You know, what if it was Britt Marling? I mean, Britt Marling is, you know, the OA on Netflix and a few other smaller films here and there. And she's not a bad actress under any circumstances. I don't have anything against her, but I don't know if she would be able to really kind of play up that role. And I, I say that because Tom Cruise was becoming 50 at the time they were shooting this. And so Britt Marling, I think, was like either in her late 20s or early 30s. And we all know how Hollywood is on that front. But like Olga Kirienko is, is a little older, a little more, I guess you could say, age appropriate. Olivia Wilde, I think at the same time, was kind of in that middle ground. 
But after the whole thing with Don't Say Darling and, and that all nonsense, like I, I, I feel like Olivia Wilde probably would have tainted my enjoyment of the film. I really enjoyed Olga in the role. And look, I'll be fair. I'm a huge Quantum of Solace fan. All right. I'm a big Quantum of Solace fan. I know that's a bit of a hot take when it comes to Bond aficionados. But I'm just going to say this a bit of a side topic. If you are looking for a great double feature, and I mean this wholeheartedly, play Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace back to back. It's four hours. It is an amazing ride. They go together perfectly. And I think she did a great job as like your non-traditional Bond girl. And I liked seeing her in a role like this a couple of years later where it just I, I just enjoyed her in the role. I mean, I don't know if she brought anything like specifically great to the role, but I still enjoyed her in it, if that makes any sense. Then, of course, they were looking for the other leading role, which is Victoria. And the producers initially considered Haley Atwell, Diane Kruger, or Kate Beckinsale. And all three of those actresses had traveled to Pittsburgh to screen test with Tom Cruise, who was filming Jack Reacher at the time. And the role ultimately went to Andrea Riseborough, and then Melissa Leo was cast later as Sally. What's funny, though, is that Haley Atwell actually probably at least left some kind of lasting impression on Tom Cruise because he cast her in the last two Mission Impossible movies. And of course, there's been that rumor that they dated during the production on that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think Tom Cruise really needs to watch out for dating uh, women that he's working with. But that's, you know what? That's his deal, man. I, I can't, I, I, I don't know, play going to play, I guess, right? But I do feel that like Andrea Riseborough, who I've only seen in this movie, I haven't really seen her in anything else, but I really liked her as Victoria because of the very interesting relationship that they had. She was very, you know, tightly wound and very on schedule and kind of like, you know, just very about the business, about what they're there for. And then Tom's character, Jack, being very uh, inquisitive and very curious and how he has to hide that from her because he knows that's not who she is. And I thought she did a really good job of conveying the the strictness in those moments but then when she starts to kind of realize that her worldview is getting shattered she really kind of clings on to what she has and there's a lot of subtle nuance in the performance that i really like we'll talk more about that here in a little bit so once universal greenlit the movie and they got their hundred million dollars production began on march 12 2012 and ashley only filmed for a couple more months it wrapped up july 14th of that year the filming locations included Baton Rouge and New Orleans, and you would probably not really think much of that, given all of the exteriors in the movie were definitely not what you would call the southern United States. But out of uh, approximately three months of shooting, 69 days of those were in Louisiana, and 11 of those were then filmed in New York, and a couple were in California in late June 2012. And then at the very end of it, when they were getting into the, you know, summer equinox is when that they were over in Iceland at the very end of 2012, where the daylight there was roughly 24 hours a day. And they really shot the exteriors in Iceland. You could really see that they had the volcanic landscapes and Kaczynski really wanted to take advantage of the round the clock light, in particular from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m., which uh, which is what they referred to as the magic hour uh, to bring sci-fi out into the daylight as they said it uh which was in contrast which a lot of films like alien which spent their time in dark holes and benighted planets as as the term here i pulled from i believe wikipedia had to say and i get that i mean when you're watching the movie 
and Tom is out there on the bike and he's racing through the post-apocalyptic world. And you're getting a view at obviously like what would be the New York area? Cause they focus on the statue of Liberty. Obviously there's the set for the empire state building. We know that there were like massive tsunamis that destroyed the world. I just find it interesting that enough earth came out of the ocean to, to basically blanket the entire city of New York all the way up to the observation deck on Empire State Building. I mean, parts of that require you to really suspend disbelief, you know, given everything uh, that's happened, because I think the whole process of the story is like 60 years after the invasion is or after the, you know, the nuclear attack or whatever they want to say. Right. After that is when it all kind of went to hell. So it's, 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 it's kind of weird. It has a little bit of a Wally vibe, if I'm being fair. And I think that is actually a really fair comparison is it does feel like the quizzical nature of Jack's character very much feels like it is something we, we got five years prior with Wally and, and, but it works in regards to what it is that Tom's character is trying to do, because you have a guy whose job is to just maintain drones inside this one sector that's his job everything else is irradiated this is the last safe bastion on earth his job is to just make sure the drones work the drones protect the the machines uh, sucking up the earth's uh, ocean in order to power fusion generators for this massive starship to take it off uh, to titan one of the moons of saturn and it's just like you know there's and then there's the aliens that are there that are trying to destroy it. It's just, it's a, it's a cool little, little setup. It's very simple. Like I said, but I just enjoyed that. Like while he's out there, he's just kind of looking through the rummage and he's just kind of questioning what he's reading and, and wondering if he really does want to leave the planet, because that of course is one of the themes there. And like, I'm a, I'm a gamer, right? So I play games like fallout and I, I right now I'm going through the Witcher three. And I read all the stories that I come across. I read the little books. I read the little bits of lore. And I kind of, as I'm watching this movie, I watch Jack, you know, pick up a, a book about Roman laws and, and read a passage there and, and take it with him. And it's like, these are interesting things to him that allow him to have a better understanding of the world around him, at least in some context. And I found that to be really interesting with the movie. Again, it's subtle and it's not necessarily new, but I just like it. I thought I thought that it worked out uh, pretty, pretty damn well. And I'll tell you what else worked out really well. OK, so I got to talk about this real quick. I kind of jumped into the story, but let me keep go going on with the um, with 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 how the movie was made. One of the cool little bits of history here is that when they were doing the office set, right, the home set that had for Jack and Victoria had the pool, had everything was very clean, very shiny. And you, and you see that they're above the clouds. They're above the clouds, which was really pretty. And they had excellent cinematography while they were up there. And like the VFX were amazing. And you're like, wow, they did a really good job with this. And I never really questioned how they made it. I thought they just put it on a set. I thought they just had like a green screen behind it or a blue screen behind it. And that was that. Well, it turns out that was actually a problem because they realized that when they had this huge massive set and they had to have the skyline behind them, they were running into problems by having the green screen or the blue screen because it would start to the screen would kind of bend and fold and you would actually see it in the uh you know in the final product so what joseph kaczynski and the cinematographer claudio miranda did 
was they actually went and they got all of these screens. They got 21 different monitors that were 500 inches by 45 inches or 500 across 45, whatever diagonal. And they put these things together and they used footage that had been filmed for three weeks from the summit of a volcano in Maui, Hawaii. So they could get it at different times a day and really showcase this kind of skybox footage sort of thing. The monitors actually ended up taking about uh, 10 weeks and multiple technicians to install and fine tune by basically creating a massive LED panel wall showcasing this footage. Tom Cruise was very impressed with it. The cast and crew were very impressed with it. Everyone was really impressed with it. And what's interesting is that this technology, this idea, ultimately was upgraded into what we know as the volume, the stagecraft technology that has been used on The Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and movies like The Batman and Thor Love and Thunder and, quite frankly, everything else going forward. So this movie... And I didn't even realize this until I was researching it is like this movie was like the prototype for the volume. And as much as I love film, I love the making of it probably even more sometimes than the actual finished product. And what drew me to the Mandalorian initially is when they talked about this virtual set, this virtual soundstage, having these LED panels and being able to project everything in real time to get the natural lighting and to, to make it look a certain way and feel a certain way. And I know the process is still evolving. There's times where you're watching Mandalorian and it, it can feel a little flat. It can feel a little dull. But in Mandalorian season two and even Book of Boba Fett and hell, go back and watch Thor Love and Thunder. You can see them expanding that. It's not perfect yet, but you can see where that technology is going and the fact that it originated by just wanting to have sky footage of sunsets and sunrises and just clear days for this kind of tiny science fiction movie that came out, you know, in 2013 is just is really, 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 really fascinating to me. Another interesting thing about uh, getting this film done is Kaczynski wanted the movie to be 4K. And this was before 4K was a thing, right? He he. This was normally not what we see in theaters now. Or up to 8K. But back then, he wanted a 4K release, but budgetary constraints coupled with an additional of six weeks of post-production, well, basically meant the idea got canceled and the film was finished and released in only 2K instead. I think one of the really interesting things about this movie is how effective the small cast is and also how much star power there was in this film. I mean, obviously, Tom Cruise is in it as the main character, Olga Kiryanko as Julia. Andrea Riseborough at the time didn't really have a lot. She came from like television and BBC. In fact, she even has said multiple times that her worst acting gig was Oblivion. And when asked about it a little bit more, she actually said she felt relatively isolated on set because of being like the only female that was there. And that you know, she said that there was some some you could call it uh, comments or some attitude from the top brass that wanted her to look a certain way, wanted her to position herself a certain way. So like her ass would look good uh, on screen or in this particular shot. And I was thinking about this as I was watching the movie and I'm like, okay, yeah, she's very prissy in the shots that she's in. She's very direct. She's very deliberate. She plays the role of not only the company person, but wanting to maintain that specific idea because her really 
only communication with anybody outside of Jack is Sally, the operator from the star station, from the TED station. And Sally is, again, very kind of, I don't want to say domineering. I don't want to say really demanding, but you can tell that there's a sense of urgency behind her voice. Melissa Leo does a really good job in the role, but there's a, there's a certain urgency there. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain level of fear that she kind of commands over Victoria's character. And so Victoria has to be perfect. Victoria has to be on point. And I think that really plays in to her character. And if that's the way they shot the movie, she definitely delivered on that performance very well, but I can understand how that would be difficult for her on set. And of course, they should have these conversations 100%, like make no mistake about that. But I, that's my take on it initially. Because other than that, like, you know, you've, you've got Morgan Freeman as Beach, the leader of the rebels. You've got Nikolaj Koster-Waldau, Jamie Lannister in the movie. And then I, I noticed that Zoe Bell was Kara, uh, one of the other women that was there, one of the other survivors. And I just kind of laughed at that a little bit. And my girlfriend was like, why are you laughing? I'm like, oh, that's Zoe Bell. She's like a kick-ass stunt woman. You know, uh, Tarantino loves her and everything else. And just seeing her pop up in other movies, to me, it was actually pretty cool because it's always nice to just see people who you think are kind of really assigned to one thing popping up as well. Like even when we're watching the movie and you see uh, Nicolaj pop up on, on screen, my girlfriend was like, oh my God, Jamie Lannister, because she didn't know that he was in the movie. And so it's always kind of nice to have that impact when when you you forget that they're there but i mean really the cast in and of itself is is small but it's effective it worked out for what they were trying to do and i feel like that really ties into the general plot because look as we dive into the plot i'm not going to go through all of it just to kind of summarize it a bit but it's like the plot of the movie follows jack as he's ending this five-year journey right you almost want to go back to star trek right it's a five-year uh, five-year mission <laughs> to seek out new life and whatever but here he's just living in this bubble with his partner and all he's doing is the same thing day in, day out, being an effective team, repairing these drones, trying to make sure that the aliens don't destroy everything. But he's also not aware that the aliens are succeeding, right? What we know about the about them, the scabs, is that they have been trying to, you know, get our resources. That's what caused the nuclear war to happen, all that stuff, right? All the propaganda that they've been told. And Victoria does keep, as far as I can tell, Victoria keeps a lot of that information away from Jack's character. Throughout the movie, we don't really see her convey her conversations with Sally to Jack. In fact, towards the end of the movie, when Jack and Sally finally kind of interact with each other, Sally goes, oh, it's finally, to, it's nice to finally meet you or be face to face, right? Something along those lines. So clearly Jack is always kind of kept in the back, kept, kept in the dark a little bit outside of what is necessary for, you know, the need to know basis for him. And I feel like that again is another part of Victoria's role in all of this. She's trying to maintain that control, maintain that power over him to be an effective team. Uh, and when, and she does this, I've noticed this too, whenever he gets a little bit too curious about something, she basically flirts with him. She has sex with him. That's her way of maintaining control. And I don't know if that is conscious or subconscious. It's not something that is explicitly laid out in the movie, but you can see she uses that. She uses her sex appeal in order to distract him from being curious. He's curious with other things. Obviously he wants to go explore anatomy rather than 
as you know, sociology and philosophy and things like that. I just thought that was really interesting, their particular dynamic. And I thought that it, he kind of worked well as like that clueless guy who was just kind of head in the clouds. He's got his New York Yankees hat. He's got his little cabin full of, you know, trinkets and things that he's found. He's built this whole thing up for years. He's developed everything in order to talk to Victoria about staying. He says at one point, hey, why don't you come down there with me? There's something I want to show you. And he's trying to get her to to leave this bubble where she has been for five years after their quote unquote mandatory memory wipe, which they never really explain why the mandatory memory wipe is needed. I mean, obviously to keep them on point is what's, you could say assumed, what is, uh, is, is to make sure that they don't actually, you know, start to think, especially as we get further into the movie and you realize that the irradiated zones are simply just other zones with other Jacks and other Victorias. And I thought that reveal was really cool when I first saw the movie back in theaters back in 2013 when it came out. And I really enjoyed that it was, that's how simple it was. It was just these, this, these aliens have come to earth. They've cloned us and they put these, these, these groups in, you know, these, these pairs in different sectors and have them do what they do, but then create this fear of an irradiated zone, have the whole thing set up to where if they go near it, it's going to set off all these alarms, these bells, these whistles. They, you know, they create this dependency. And that makes me kind of question like a little bit like our dependency on technology. You know what I mean? Like how often are we at this point willing to go off the beaten path because, you know, the GPS tells us go this particular way, you know, and to kind of go back to like video games, right? Like I'm playing the Witcher and it will always try to drive me. The little GPS on the map will always try to drive me towards the road. It always tries to bring me back to get me on that main path to get me to the to the next objective. But I've discovered in that game that I have found so many crazy things by simply running off the beaten path, you know, and that's kind of what Jack is doing here. And there's elements of this movie that really feel like it could be a video game. Like I know that it was conceived as a graphic novel and then expanded upon into this particular science fiction story. But I, I, I kind of feel like it could it might have also taken a little bit from an open world science fiction video game. And to be fair, there's a lot of movies these days that heavily, heavily feel like that. And it might also just be because video games are now the dominant entertainment uh, plat, you know, medium on the planet. But of course, what's really cool is as Jack starts to kind of uncover these things and he ends up getting lured in to traps by the scabs because they want to capture him to show him that they're not evil. The way that Kaczynski frames this great action sequence in a library where we think that they're alien. We see them in the distance. We see the little glowing lights on their helmets. We hear them talk and it sounds very alien. And you think, oh, wow, these guys are aliens. But then you're also like, but are they human? Could they be human? There's questions there. And of course, I really enjoyed the reveal that they had found old stealth suits and they were able to radio scramble their their uh, their communications as to screw with the drones because they figured that out after a 60 years of fighting these things. Then I thought that was a really cool way of showcasing how they believed Jack and Victoria, all the Jacks and Victorias believed that the scavs were aliens because that's how they presented themselves as a way to get around technology. And of course, 
you know, Sally and, and the Tet, they're not going to tell them that that's not the case. They want them to believe all this because it still boils down to control and propaganda. But of course, you know, as we start to realize what their plan is to take out the particular uh, space station, again, to send in a Trojan horse, blow the damn thing up, and things never really work out the way you want them to. Um, I really liked how they did the the bait and switch at the end of the movie where you thought that Julia was going to be the one to go in one way ticket with Jack to go and blow this thing up. But obviously they, they did that. We had a mortally wounded Morgan Freeman who wanted to see it. It was, you know, they set the whole thing up. It's great. But what I thought was really interesting was the, the, the intricacies, if you will, of while Jack is headed into uh, the upper atmosphere to go to the space station, which by the way, this is just a side thing. All right. If again, going back to video games, the way that the Tet station was designed, go and look at that versus how space stations are in no man's sky. And they're very similar. Like they were both uh, no man's sky was announced at the, I think the beginning of 2013 or uh, yeah, with the video game X, I think is what it was. And then, uh, and then we see that if you go look at them now, they seem very similar to what we get out of, uh, out of oblivion. It's kind of funny. I'm not saying that there's theft. I'm just saying that sometimes, you know, certain things line up, but I liked as they were traveling there and he's listening to the black box recording of what happened. You know, we find out that it was a research team that was sent to Titan that they were there trying to, you know, do research. And in the meantime, they encountered the space station. They were rerouted to investigate. And that is when Jack and Victoria were the pilots who were there. Everyone else was in their sleep container, was in cryo, if you will. And those are who were taken, scanned, and cloned. And that's why they only have their DNAs. And that's why when Morgan Freeman says that when they came to Earth and they brought these drop pods down with thousands of these clones of Jack that were all trained to kill. It was sending one of our best to then be our destroyer. And I thought that was such an interesting like visual in my mind of just like nothing. But like think think the ending of the Phantom Menace when the droid army is landing on Naboo getting ready to fight the Gungans and like you know, the transport doors open and just here come out all these rows of Tom Cruise's wielding guns and just going from there. I, I I would have liked to have seen that. I mean, I think, well, okay, to be fair, as much as I would like to have seen it, I also feel that that might take away from the impact of visualizing it in my mind. Not everything needs to be shown. I, I understand that now. Sometimes you just want to leave certain things to your imagination and that's how I took that particular scene. Although like, like the ending of World War Z, the movie has the deleted footage from the stuff that the director had shot for the final act where they were in Russia that never went anywhere. They reshot the, the ending of that movie, um, you know, to have it a bit more uh, intense and whatever. But we got some of that footage in the end credit scene. Same with Ghostbusters 2016 there was a dance sequence that we see in the end credit scene for that movie. The whole dance sequence is in the extended cut. And that's not a movie I recommend. I don't think I'm going to do, I might do a patio commentary on that just because I dislike that movie so much. And I just want to like break down why I don't like that movie. It would be cathartic for me to do, but I don't want to spend a lot of time bashing on film because I love movies so much. But again, like this is one of those scenarios where you maybe don't need to see it. Although it would have been relatively cool to check that out. 
So again, at the end of the movie, you know, they blow everybody up. We see it coming. It's it's not the most, you know, surprising ending. But then it cuts forward a couple years later, and somehow Julia has been with child. You know, she was shot in the gut early on in the movie, right? But still, that didn't damage the reproductive organs. Had sex with Tom Cruise that day. Okay, fine, whatever. And then she's got the child, which is good. But she's been by, but it, it appears that she's been by herself for like a couple years. You know, so then my question becomes, who helped with the birth, man? I have two kids. I have been in the delivery room both times. I know what it's like. I know what it's like with an epidural and without an epidural. All right. Like uh, golf ball through a garden hose on your own. Again, suspension of disbelief is really what it boils down to. It's all about suspension of disbelief because I, I really did enjoy the ending when all of the refugees had made their way there, had found this little slice of heaven that Tom Cruise had found and had built out. And then here comes the other Jack that they encountered. And, you know, leading them to believe, oh, this is, you know, they're, they're going to be happy together because it's the same person. But is it the same person? Right. Is that Victoria, the same Victoria that was with, you know, uh, Tech 4-9, which was Jack? That becomes uh, another question of how this whole thing plays out. And obviously that's what they're insinuating. That's what they're alluding to. They want the movie to have a happy ending. They want the movie to have. Uh, you know, like, okay, he might be dead, but here he is. And I get it. You know, that's, it makes sense. It's fine. It's a, it's a nice sweet ending to the movie. Wrapped it up. Nice, neat little bow. I was happy with it. Again, I've watched the movie a few times. I really enjoy the film. Very happy to dive back in the other day to check it out. So I could talk about it for this, but yeah, like I like the ending. Now I like this movie, but Critics out there, uh, they were a little bit different than me. We oftentimes will butt heads when it comes to the critical reception part of the episode. But over on Rotten Tomatoes, they gave the movie a 53% based on 255 reviews with an average score of about 5.88 out of 10. The general consensus reads, visually striking but thinly scripted. Oblivion benefits greatly from its strong production values and an excellent performance from Tom Cruise. Metacritic, on the other hand, uh, gave it 54 out of 100 based on 41 critics, and it had mixed or average reviews. I mean, it's like middle of the road. Fine. You know, 53% of the of the critics enjoyed it. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means 53% of the critics enjoyed it. However, talking about it with my friends who have seen the movie over the years, they've they've said the same thing. Like, they liked the movie. Like, it's I think it's grown on people. And I think that's one of the, the key issues with a lot of these films and one of the reasons why as I do this show, I want to go back and look at movies that are like 10 years old almost, or maybe over 10 years old, because the cultural zeitgeist of where they were at the time and how we review movies now, because like I talked about Avatar being culturally relevant the other day in a video for the main channel, and people were like, there's no way it's culturally relevant. It's, a, it's, it's, it's whatever. It's Dances with Smurfs and Ferngully. And I look at it, and I'm like, yeah, but here's the thing. 13 years later, we're still talking about it. And 13 years later, the new movie's blowing up. You know, it, it's like, there's always going to be, it's space and time. And I think we need to always acknowledge that. I think we always need to acknowledge that the cultural zeitgeist may not be there yet. And that sometimes movies find their footing down the road. This isn't like when we were kids, when you would have, you know, maybe one, two, three movies a month. 
Now it's like, you know, one, two, three movies a week, depending on what time of year it is. There's simply so much to watch, never mind what's on streaming, that movies have, I think, more trouble seeping into that zeitgeist or into, into culture, if you will, simply because there is so much more of it and that people just aren't seeing it without there being a massive response to it, good or bad. So to a lot of these people, Oblivion is very much a middle-of-the-road movie. But I think in, in regards to Tom Cruise movies, it's up there. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I love Jack Reacher. I loved Oblivion. Never saw the second Jack Reacher movie. I need to. Of course, I love all the Mission Impossible movies. Number four is not my favorite, but five and six were great. Number three was Dynamite. Um, you know, and it's like, but he's also like night and day was really good. Tropic Thunder was really good. Edge, uh, was it edge of tomorrow, uh, is one of my top films of 2014. I think I'll have to touch on, on that one. I think that movie's great. Live, die, repeat, whatever you want to call it. You know, I, again, we got Tom, we got a good Tom Cruise performance. And I think at this point we're used to a good Tom Cruise performance. And this movie didn't disappoint on that one. Again, it didn't really have the impact at the time, at least box office wise. So the film only earned roughly $37.1 million in its opening weekend, including only about $5.5 million from IMAX screenings in about 323 theaters. It was Cruise's best North American opening after Mission Impossible and War of the Worlds. But what's interesting is this movie actually wasn't shown at cinemas in Boston. Because when this movie came out, that was during the Boston Marathon bombing. And so there was an ongoing manhunt for one of the bombers during the time. And it forced the city to temporarily close everything as part of a mandatory shelter in place order. So people in Boston couldn't go and see it. But listen, they had other things to worry about that were greatly more important. The movie ultimately ended up leaving theaters June 27, 2013, so it only played for a few months, grossing $89.1 million domestic and another $198.8 million internationally, bringing it to a grand worldwide total of $287.9 million. However, what I was able to find that on home video between Blu-ray and DVD, the movie did pull in an additional 36, nearly $37 million. So that does put it well over $300 million on the $100 million budget. Is it considered a financial success to some people out there? The answer to that is yes. I think by 2013 standards, because the home video market was, uh, was, was stronger than it is now, that probably was deemed more of a success. I'm sure the movie did well on you know digital and it did well on whatever. Uh, and plus, also, this is just the initial data that I can find. These numbers aren't even remotely up to speed. So the movie was actually re-released on 4K, where it should have been initially, three years later in 2016. I don't know how well it sold on there, but, you know, they, there's going to be more money coming on it. So to wrap this whole thing up, I mean, Oblivion to me is a movie that is just a fun science fiction film. It doesn't ask too much of its audience in regards to, like, forcing them to pay attention to the intricate details in order to you know, unveil this tapestry of a story. It's just, it's, it's very isolated. It works for what it wants to do. Some people had a little bit of issue with how the terrain changed, how all of a sudden, you know, there was like 
several hundred feet of debris covering New York. But at the end of the day, like, I don't care about any of that. I, it reminded me of Planet of the Apes. You know, why is it that the Statue of Liberty is all the way here at the ocean? Like, what the hell's going on? Where where did it go? How did it get there 700 years later or, or something like that? Like, you don't really need to ask those questions. You just understand the geography based upon the, 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 the landmarks. And that's all they need to do. That's all they need to say in order to convey that particular emotion. And it worked for what they were trying to do. I think another thing that really worked well for this movie was, again, the cinematography was really fantastic. The visual effects were pretty amazing. Joseph Kaczynski learned a lot on Tron. He brought a lot of that over to Oblivion. For those of people who have seen um, the Top, uh, Top Gun Maverick, I haven't seen it yet, so it's on my list of things to watch. But for those who have seen it, again, I've heard nothing but great things about the cinematography, the directing, the action, how it all is just very visceral and very in your face. Here was experimenting with some different aspects of that. But one of the things that I think really worked out well was the score was the soundtrack for the movie. And one of the biggest things that Kaczynski ever did, in my opinion, was bringing in Daft Punk to do the soundtrack for Tron legacy. I mean, despite however you may feel about that movie, that soundtrack slaps and it slaps hard. And as I was listening to this again, I'm like, yeah, I'm hearing like uh, what feels very similar to Tron Legacy. It feels kind of similar like what, you know, what you might get out of a little bit of um, like a Blade Runner theme sort of thing. This that kind of vibe, you know, uh, but what it was is he actually used a band called M83. And the reason why he chose M83 to score the film is because he went back and he found his original treatment from 2005 and on it, he had enlisted the soundtrack of M83 because that's what he was listening to as he was writing it. And so he thought, well, Hey, listen, my collaboration with Daft Punk worked out so well for Tron legacy. Why don't I try to uh, do it with M83? Because he realized that Daft Punk's music wouldn't make sense for something like oblivion. And I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I love the soundtrack to Tron legacy. Daft Punk is one, is one of my all time favorite bands. It worked for Tron Legacy with what they were trying to do. This would have felt a little bit different. This would have felt a little bit different. Like to me, this would have felt like if the soundtrack of Raiders of the Lost Ark used Queen instead of John Williams. Yet you would be down for it. You wouldn't shy away from it. You wouldn't be upset with it at all. But it would just it wouldn't feel right at the end of the day. So I mean, I really enjoyed what he did with that. And I think the soundtrack, it's subtle and it, it it speaks to like, you know, the way the world is the post-apocalyptic nature, so to speak. I just really enjoyed that. And I, I might actually need to go pick up the soundtrack now just to give it another listen to. In fact, according to Wikipedia here, which is what I have up at the moment, they did release a deluxe edition of the soundtrack on the same day. The uh, a soundtrack dropped in April of 2013 that features an additional 13 tracks. So if you are interested in wanting to get more music out of Oblivion, there you go. There's actually an extended edition or deluxe edition of the soundtrack that has a lot more on it. And I think, look, that's something that I didn't know until right now. So, hey, we, we're learning together on here on Patio Commentary. But as always, I do want to know your thoughts, your opinions on this movie. Did you love it? Did you hate it? Were you indifferent to it? Is it something that you just recently saw or you saw it in theaters? Let me know your thoughts. Let me know your opinions. And of course... If you guys want to help support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com forward slash Matt Jarbo. I will be adding in a perk here very soon that will be allowing you, the listener, to suggest movies for me to cover here on the show. And of course, we'll probably end up doing something down the road 
maybe once a month where we'll get together a live stream on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash patio commentary. That will allow us to have a discussion of a movie that I covered. Uh, I do generally tend to cover movies that are available on streaming at the moment in time um, because I feel that makes it the most accessible to everybody who wants to listen. And you might listen to this and go, man, I want to go back and watch this movie again and to realize that, oh, it's available on streaming. I don't have to like hunt it down is something that I think is going to bring a lot of us together for building out this community of movie fans who just want to talk about a film. Anyway, guys, thank you again so much for listening to me. Have yourself a great day. I'll be back next Wednesday for our regular scheduled release. And next Wednesday is going to be Battle Los Angeles, which is another kind of smaller sci-fi movie from 2011 that I just want to talk about. And then after that, it's going to be Prisoners on the 18th. And then January 25th will be Frank Darabont's The Mist. All of those movies are currently available on Netflix, I believe. So go ahead and check those out if you're excited to dive into that. And I'll talk to you all later. Have yourself a great day and peace out.